This morning, as we look together at the Word of God, we think about the question that Jesus asked in Matthew 22. He asked the Pharisees this question, the Messiah, whose son is he? Right, that was the question he asked to them, and that's the question we're thinking about this Advent season. Uh, Last week, we thought about how Jesus is the son of Abraham. This week, we think about how Jesus is the son of David. And we remember in that passage that Jesus is telling the Pharisees, hey, if you understand who Jesus is as the son of David, you're going to understand who he is as the Messiah. You're going to grasp his true identity and really what he's come to do and why he's doing the things he is. And so this morning, as we continue to think about Jesus and whose son he is, we think about Jesus Jesus as the son of David and remember what he has come to do. So if you would read with me Luke chapter 1 verse 32. We know from the book of Matthew that it talks about Jesus being the son of David, the son of Abraham. We read in Luke chapter 1 verse 32, the word of the Lord says this, he, that is Jesus, will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And the next verse, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so here we read about Jesus as the Son of David. We read about him as the Son of the Most High as well. We'll think more about that in coming weeks. But Jesus as the son of David means something. It means here that he is sitting on the throne of his father, David. And so if we want to understand why it matters that Jesus is the son of David, we have to understand something about David himself. We have to think about what God said to David. Because God made promises to David about his offspring and what his son would be like. And so... In the Bible, we read about those promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is what we read this morning. These promises that God gave to David about his offspring, about his child. And so if you were to look at 2 Samuel 7, you would see there in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 7 that God will make a great name for David. Uh, God says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. We see in verse 10 that God will give Israel a place to dwell and give them rest from their enemies. And we see in verse 11, the end of verse 11, that God will uh, declare, he declares, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. And so God promises to make David a house. So we see these three, these three promises, that God is going to make David's name great, that he's going to give Israel, the people, a place to dwell, and that the Lord is going to give him a house. And specifically, that house is going to be the establishment of David's kingdom through his offspring, we read in the next verse. And so if we were to just pause right there and think about what God is saying to Abraham— or to David, we see that he's saying much of the same things that he says to Abraham, 
right? You remember that God said to Abraham that he would make his name great. Here he's saying the same thing to David, that he would make David's name great. God told Abraham that his descendants would dwell in the land. Now God is telling David the same thing, that the people will dwell in the land, would have a place to dwell, rather, to David. And so we see, again, that God made promises to Abraham about his offspring, what the offspring of Abraham would be like. And here God is saying similar things to David. He's making promises about what his offspring would be like. So we see really the same categories, the same promises. God giving them to Abraham, and then God giving the same types of promises to David. And so we need to think about why is that? It's not that God is making two sets of promises, that he's made this set of promises to Abraham, and then he makes another set of promises to David, and these both are going to be fulfilled, so to speak. It's more that God is saying that he's going to fulfill what he said to Abraham, and it's going to be through David and through his offspring. The same things, God's continuing this promise. He hasn't forgotten about it. He's going to make it happen. He's bringing it back up, and he's saying he's narrowing in our focus. Uh, who is going to fulfill these promises? How are they going to be fulfilled? Not just through uh, generic people as offspring of Abraham, but through one person, and that one person is going to be through the line of David. So it's going to be a son of Abraham and a son of David. And so we see that connection here in this passage in the Old Testament. But that's not all that God says about this offspring of David. He continues to make promises. What is this offspring going to be like? He specifically says, you can look at verse 13 in 2 Samuel 7, that David's offspring will build a house for the Lord. And then in the next section, we see God will establish the throne of David's offspring forever later in that verse. And his kingdom will be forever. His throne will be established Forever, That gets repeated a couple times in that passage. So the person who fulfills this promise is going to be a king. The son of David is going to be a king who is going to bring about this uh, eternal kingdom. He's going to sit on the royal throne. He's going to build the house of God. And his kingdom will exist forever. That's the promise of God to David. And so we ask the question and we think about it, who is this talking about? Who is God talking about when he makes these promises to David? Uh, we keep reading in the Bible, if we were starting 2 Samuel 7 and we kept reading, the first offspring of David that we read about who is the next king is Solomon. And Solomon, in a very real sense, actually fulfills some of these promises. God brings some of these to pass through Solomon. We know Solomon himself is a king. He builds the temple of God, the house of God, and after the temple is completed, he makes the statement that God is fulfilling the promises that he made to David. So, for example, he says this after the temple is complete. 1 Kings 8.20 Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, and the Lord, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And so there's a real sense in which Solomon sees himself as fulfilling these promises and that God is actually bringing some of these things to pass through Solomon. And the, really not just Solomon, but as God builds a house for David in this line of kings, in the kings of Judah. But just like we thought about last week and the offspring of Abraham, how there's kind of two levels going on in the promise, right? God made promises about Israel and about Jesus when he was talking about the offspring of Abraham. We see really something of the same thing going on here. God is making promises about the the literal offspring of David, about Solomon and the kings in Judah. And he's making promises about Jesus, the son of David who is to come. And so we see that reality here. And one of the reasons we know that is because Solomon himself doesn't live forever, right? God promised that his son would be reigning eternally, not just that the line of kings would last forever, but that there would be an offspring who would live forever, who would reign forever. And we know Solomon died, and there was no king in the line who lived forever, and so we draw some implications from that, right? We know if if God's going to bring an eternal king, that means something has to happen in order for the king and the kingdom to live forever. Uh, it's kind of implied there that something God is going to do something to deal with sin and with death so that people could live forever. And so David's offspring, right, Solomon, can't do that. And he didn't do that. He didn't live forever. But when we get to the New Testament, as we read this morning... We see that promise showing up again. We see this talk about the son of David coming. The first verse in the New Testament says it. And then at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we read it as well. That Jesus is the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. Which means that he is going to be the eternal king. That's the promise. That's what that means. He is going to be the one who reigns forever. And there will be no end to his kingdom, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so this is what the New Testament tells us, right? That Jesus is this offspring of David. He's the king. He is the son of David that has been promised. And so it's very clear, it's very straightforward, really, when we get to the New Testament, that these promises, we see a little glimpse of them, a little taste of their fulfillment in maybe Solomon and the coming kings, but we see the fullness of the promise in Jesus, that these promises are fulfilled in him. And that's really where we start to get into the, the good news of the promises, right? Jesus is the son of David. Well, that's good news. When, when the angel announced that to Mary, that Jesus would be born, he would sit on the throne of David, Mary broke out into a song that lasted a lot of verses. Uh, she started singing praise to God. It was good news to her, right? And it should be good news to us when we hear that Jesus has come and he is the son of David. So we think this morning, why is that good news? Why is it good news that Jesus is the son of David? Well, the first thing is because we, we need a king like Jesus, right? He is the king. He's reigning forever. And so we read these descriptions in the Old Testament about what the coming king would be like. We read them a lot of times around Christmas. We read one of them this morning, right? Isaiah chapter 9 says, 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that child that is born is going to sit on the throne of David. We read about him more in Isaiah chapter 11, that this child is a branch from the line of David, from the stump of Jesse. And that son of David is going to be a certain type of king. And what does it say? He's going to be a king who brings a kingdom of peace. That's what Isaiah says. And so we look around at where we're at right now, and we think about how we need, we need a king of peace. We need a king who's able to bring peace. Uh, just from literal wars, we can look around and we can think about the war in Israel and the Gaza Strip right now. We can think about uh, the war in Ukraine. We can think about civil wars that are occurring in nations right now throughout the world. That's regardless of when wars are justified or not, that wars lead to death and destruction, and we need, we need a king who is going to bring peace. That's a peace that we cannot bring ourselves. And so Jesus is the king who brings that peace. Uh, he is the king who will reign, and part of the way he brings that peace, right, is through uh, destroying his enemies, so there will be no one to rebel, to to bring destruction and sin and death anymore, but he brings that peace as the king of peace, and he is the only way to have peace, to have true eternal peace, is to know him and to be a part of his kingdom. And so if we want to live in a world where there is eternal peace, we have to know Jesus. We have to be a part of his kingdom. That is the only way to to have peace. We have to, to be a part of the world where the lion lays down with the lamb. We have to know the lamb of God, the lion of Judah. We have to have him as our king to, the Bible says, declare him or confess him as our king. Right? We get to the New Testament. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is our Lord. It means he's, he's our king. He's our master. He directs our life, that that is the way that we are saved, and not just saved from sin, but the way we're made a part of the kingdom of God and get to experience the goodness of his kingdom. And so, as we think about what Jesus came to do, we think usually, first and foremost, we think about the forgiveness of sin, and we should think about that. Jesus, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. But alongside of that, we also think about how Jesus is the king. And that salvation is about more than forgiveness. As crazy as it is to say that, that forgiveness is such an amazing thing. How can I experience forgiveness from God? That there's more than that that God promises to those who believe in him, who confess him as their Lord, who commit and surrender to him as king. And so that's what the kingdom will be like. That's what the king is like. Not only a kingdom of peace, but a kingdom of righteousness and justice, right? We read the description where the king uh, will always make the right decision. The people will always be treated in the right way. The person in charge has a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and the fear of the Lord. That's the kind of place we want to live in. That's the kind of place 
really that as we think about where we live right now that we don't get to experience. And that's not just bound to America. That's, that's really everywhere on earth. There's no one who fits this description. But as we think about the place we do live and how we don't live in this perfect world with righteousness and justice, it makes us long for things to be better, to be made right. And we remember the truth here that those things will never be right until Jesus comes back. That we want to see those things play out, and by God's grace, we pray that he will be merciful and things will improve in our country and in other countries where people are at. But ultimately, the kingdom of perfection only comes when Jesus comes. And that's our hope as Christians. That's what we remember, that Jesus being born as king means that he will come back as king, that he sits in heaven right now on the throne at the right hand of God, and he will come and set up his kingdom on earth, and everything will be made right. All sorrow and sin will be erased, and he will bring this glorious kingdom, and the saints will be a part of this kingdom forever. And that's the good news that we remember. That's the good news that uh, Mary and the disciples and the other people in the New Testament remembered and thought of as they thought of Jesus being king. And so that's the kind of kingdom that the king brings. We need a king like that. That's the good news of Jesus. But we also see some more good news, right? We see other things about what Jesus is going to be like. We see that he is going to be the son of David who makes a dwelling place for the people of God. That's what we read in 2 Samuel 7, right? That was part of the promise. The son, God promised that David, he promised to David that the people of God would have a place to dwell forever. And so I think when Jesus says, uh, as some other commentators have said as well, I think when Jesus says that he goes to prepare a place for us, I think he's tying back into this promise that God made to David about the people of God, that he would give them a place to dwell forever. That Jesus, as the Son of God, is saying, I am doing that. I am making that place for you, and I will come again, and I will bring you to that place, right, for all the people of God. And so we see that promise there. We also see the Son of David would build the house of God, not just a place for the people of God to dwell, but he would build the house of God, right? Solomon built the temple, but Jesus, as the son of David, what did he say? He said, I will build my church. And when we get to the New Testament, what do we read about the church? We read descriptions in the book of Ephesians about the church being the temple of God. We read that in several places in the New Testament, in uh, the book of Timothy and uh, Galatians, Romans, elsewhere about the temple, the house of the living God, the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. And so Jesus is saying, I'm building that house of God right now, not a physical building, but building people together as living stones, as Peter says built on top of each other for God to dwell in. And so Jesus, as he says that, even as we read prophesied in Zechariah chapter 6 about this son of David building the house of God, 
I think we see Jesus referring to that as he knew he was the son of David and knew these were the things that he had come to do. And that's good news for us. If Jesus builds the house of God, that's good news for us because he cannot fail. We sing the song, he cannot fail, he must prevail. Have faith in God, have faith in God. If Jesus has said, I will build my church, and we see it prophesied in the Old Testament that he would build the house of God, we know that he will bring that about. And so when we gather together on Sunday mornings as a church, we know that there is an outcome that is guaranteed, that the church of God will be built, that it will continue to to grow as the Lord intends, and not necessarily each individual local congregation, but the whole church, the universal church, the bride of Christ will become spotless and blameless and pure, and the Lord will come back for her. And so that's a guarantee we see in the word of God. And that's exciting. That gets me excited about the church and what the Lord is doing. Hopefully it gets you excited about the church as well. But we see that from Jesus being the son of David. One more thing as we uh, think about why it's good news that Jesus is the son of David. I don't know if you caught it, but when we read about God promising what he would do with the son of David, he also promised that he would discipline the son of David, right? If he sinned, he would uh, discipline him with stripes, with the rods of men. And we see that play out with Solomon, right? We see Solomon discipline, the kingdom uh, being split in two, and we see that in the line of the kings of Judah, how they were disciplined for their sins. But Jesus, as the son of David, that means something and tells us something about him as well. Jesus didn't sin, and so he was not disciplined for his sin. But what do we read? We read about Jesus that he, in Isaiah 53, he bore our sins. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or the King James says stripes, and that is the same word that we read in Second Samuel 7, stripes. By his stripes we are healed. And so we we have this, uh, this picture that we start to see a little bit of in 2 Samuel 7, and we continue to see developed throughout the Bible, that this son of David wouldn't die for his own sins, but in bringing about eternal life, in bringing about an eternal kingdom, he would deal with sin, and he would deal with the sin of the people by taking that discipline of God on himself, Not because he had sinned, but because the people had sinned. He would bear those stripes for us. And so in order that death would be no more, the king came and died in our place. And so that's why we are able to live forever as a part of the kingdom. That's why it's not just Jesus, the king, who lives forever, but the people in the kingdom get to live forever as well. And that's why it's so important to have Jesus as my king, not just to know he is the king, right? We can reject him, we can submit to him. It doesn't change whether or not he is king. But if he's my king, that makes all the difference. 
in whether our sin is dealt with and whether we will be a part of the kingdom and live forever with him. And so these are the promises that we see given to David and given about the son, the offspring of David. And these are the promises that we see are fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David. We remember that the Bible is not just a collection of stories that are just compiled together, but that there is really one overarching storyline to the Bible, and we're reminded of that as we think about Jesus being last week the son of Abraham, and this week the son of David. That God has made these promises from long before Jesus was born, and he is bringing about their fulfillments through Jesus. And so who is Jesus? He is the son of David. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are thankful that Jesus has come, that you have sent him into the world because you loved the world. We thank you that he has borne our stripes, that when we should have been disciplined and punished for our sins, that he took that punishment for us. We thank you that he brings righteousness and peace. And Lord, we thank you that he is building the house of God, that he's making a dwelling place for his people. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We pray that we will rejoice in them. That when Mary heard these words about Jesus, she rejoiced. She knew what they meant. We pray that we would understand more and more what they mean, and we would rejoice. We would break out in singing. We would uh, experience the joy of Christmas, not just because it's a great time of year, but because we remember the truth of what it means that Jesus has come and is the King. Lord, continue to work in us and change our hearts, we pray. And Lord, we pray that if there is anyone who does not have Jesus as King, that you will work in them today and show them their need and the goodness of what Jesus has done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.